I'm up here this morning and I'm very aware of the uh, national news um, today. If you are not, there has been a significant mass shooting in Florida. Um, 50 plus people. So sick of that. Jesus, come quickly. 50 plus people are killed, 50 plus are injured. And um, maybe it's appropriate this morning we are uh, talking about God being the God of miracles. Because I think when we think about things like the state of our national culture where gun violence is so rampant and where mass shootings are unfortunately uh, a weekly if not daily occurrence, for us to trust in a God of miracles who can come and bring shalom, is peace. Peace that passes all understanding. That's certainly my hope and that should be the hope of all of us. And so as we come uh, before the Lord to learn from his word today, we do so seeking a God of peace, a God of miracles, a God of redemption, a God of transformation. Um, With that in mind, would you pray with me? Father, we ask, Lord, for you to be who you are, a God of redemption. We just hear these stories way too much of the violence. One story is too many. We pray for that community and how it is affected so radically by that pain, by that brokenness of death and violence. And we ask, Lord, that you be God there and you be God in us, that the work of Christ to bring grace and love, to give hope where there is hopelessness, to bring comfort where there is none, to bring peace where there is only violence and conflict, to bring wholeness where there is simply brokenness. We ask you to be that God to us today in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Come invade us. Invade us with your grace. Make us whole. Invade us with your power. Make us a means of transformation in your glory in this world. Lord, we pray that you do the work that you and you alone can do, and that is to make things whole, make things right, make things good. You've done that for us through the grace of Jesus. We ask that you do that work through your spirit in all the world. Come quickly, Lord. We long for your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we are going to continue our series on the city of God by turning to Luke chapter 1. And the subjects of this morning's messages are the subject of this morning's message is actually uh, Zechariah, the high priest, and eventually he becomes the father of John the Baptist, but we don't meet him when he's the father yet. We meet him when he's still wondering what in the world is going on. And I think it's safe to say at this point, Zechariah is a man of disappointment. And disappointment is one of those powerful things in life that uh, affects, shapes, and forms us in some really powerful way, especially the big disappointments in life. 
I think that all of us at one point or another have felt that ache of disappointment. I, I, can, I can share with you that I, I know it. In fact, I'm going to share with you perhaps one of my greatest disappointments. The one that to this day probably marks me more than most. It happened when I was in seventh grade. And when I was in seventh grade, we were living in a small town in Ontario, Canada, in the eastern part. And my parents came to my older brother, my younger sister, and myself and said, "Um, something is changing. We're moving. We're going to move four hours away to a larger city, a city of about 200,000 people. Uh, We're going to move as a family. And I remember that, that um, fear that comes. And those of you who've done those sorts of moves when you're a child or um, when you're young, you know there's that fear. What's it going to be like? Am I going to have any friends there? What's it, what, how am I going to fit in? All that other sort of stuff. But one thing that I was really excited about moving, we were moving for my dad's work, but we weren't moving for my mom's work. My mom had had a job for a long time. She'd, she'd, she'd been um, at work every day, full time. And when we moved, she was going to stay home. And she was going to be there for us kids. And when my mom had been there for us kids, but in a very different way. And those of you who know that tension of being a working mom, you know that tension. Well, my mom knew that tension. And, and I knew that Now for the first time in my school life, my mom was going to be home when I got there at the end of school. And it was... It was interesting because I was in a a French immersion program in the local public school. Both my younger sister went to the Christian elementary school. My older brother went to the Christian high school. Um, So I actually got home way before they did from school. I would get out at about 3.05 and you know the meanderings of a 7th grade boy. I would check this out, go over there, go do that, and then finally get home. I would get home at about maybe 3.20 in the afternoon. And I would have until about 4.15 with just me and my mom. And that was a good time. In fact, I can remember, I can, I can tell you how it would work. Because we moved in December, December 4 actually, was, it sticks with me. We, we would get home, I would get home from school and I would walk into the, our house and I would sit at the kitchen table and my mom would get a, a cup of hot chocolate and what, we called it a lemon buster. I don't know why, but it was this sort of donut that I would eat. My mom would warm it up for 15 seconds in the microwave and I would have a warm donut and hot chocolate and I would sit with my mom and talk about my day. And it was awesome. And then three months later, I stood at the top of the stairs of our house. And I heard my mom and dad talking, and it was getting heated because my mom was struggling. And she said to my dad, and I, she didn't know that I heard it. She said, I can't stay home anymore. It's driving me crazy. I need to go back to work. As a seventh grade boy, that broke me. I never told my mom that. Didn't tell her until years later. In fact, within the last decade, the pain that that caused me. But I can tell you that that disappointment of not having my mom home to have hot chocolate and a warm donut at the end of the day, it took some fire away. It took some life away. It certainly took some joy away. And I bore the consequence of that for a good amount of time. 
Zechariah is a man who's wounded. He's a man who's bearing the consequence of disappointment. He feels the pain and the hurt from hoping for something against hope that it would be good, that it would be, it would be his normal, and it's not. He and Elizabeth, his wife, had been married for a long time. They were good Jewish couple. He was from the priestly line. He was a man who had lived an obedient life. And they had longed, just please, please, we want the laughter of a child in our home. We want a little boy or a little girl running around. We want a, a, a child who will make a mess. Please, Lord, give us a child's mess in our home. Please, Lord, wake us up at three o'clock with a baby crying in the bassinet next to our bed. Please, Lord, give us that life. And the silence in Zechariah and Elizabeth's house was deafening. Pain. And you can certainly imagine that as Zechariah went through all of his duties, as Elizabeth kept their home the way that she did, that she did so without the fire, without the passion that she maybe would have once had when she longed for and thought that someday perhaps a child would come. We're going to begin our reading in our text this morning by beginning at verse 5 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. It begins this way. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, those of you, you need to know, both of these are priestly line. These are important historical. These, these are the sort of the, the Rockefellers and, I don't know, the Bushes and Clintons of the day. These are power brokers. These are the people who are in recognition, Abijah and Aaron. And so they came from what would be considered good stock. Both of them, they were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, hear that. These weren't just people that had good bloodline. These were people who were good. These were people that if you saw them in your community, in your schools, in your church, in your neighborhood, they were the upstanding folks, the folks that others would look to and say, boy, I hope, I hope someday that I can be a man like Zechariah. I hope I can be a woman like Elizabeth. I hope that we can have their sort of marriage. I hope that we can live their sort of life. They were good. But of course, there was a problem. And that problem comes in verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were very old. Now, I don't know that pain. Kristen and I have been blessed with three great, great children. Children who bring life and joy to us. But I do know that there are some who do know this pain. 
that there are some, when we read these words, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. There are men and women out there who hear those words and say, I know what she felt like. I know the hurt. But you see, there's a connection that we would wonder about. They, we hear in the verse before that they were obedient. They were good. They were following God, and yet they still have this consequence in their life that they have to deal with. And some of us might try to seek to make a connection. Why, Lord, I am a good person. I follow you. I listen to you. I know what this says, and I live it out. Why is it that this disappointment is one that I know? I am trying to live a good life. Why do you not honor that? By making my life better. I know that there are people in here who wonder about that. Who say in their mind, I read the Bible every day. Lord, why are you not listening to my prayers? I I follow Jesus as best as I can every day. Why are you not speaking to me? I... I have gone to church and I have been a part of ministry and I pray and yet, Lord, you seem so far away from me. Where are you, O God? I wonder if Zechariah ever asked that question. I wonder if Elizabeth ever asked that question. I wonder if as they were being obedient to observing dietary laws and cleanliness laws, as they observed the festivals, as they were obedient to all the uh, uh, books, uh, the the law of Exodus, the law of Leviticus, the law of Deuteronomy, I wonder if they thought to themselves, is it really worth it because God doesn't seem to be listening to us. God seems so far away. But we need to know this truth that God doesn't promise his followers an easy life even when we live right. I want you to hear that. If you don't know Jesus and you are here exploring who Jesus is, wondering whether or not the Christian life is a life for you because it'll be easier than what you're experiencing now, I am here to promise you that being a follower of Jesus is not defined as easy. It's incredibly complex. It's difficult at times. There are big questions that you and I ask when we follow Jesus and we see the sort of violence that we've seen today in Florida. We wonder about who God is and how do we live into his truths, into a dark and broken world. We struggle when the world seems to be going a different direction and the world says this is the way you should live. These are the things that you should do. And we as Christians have have this calling of God, have a calling of his word to live differently than that. That makes it difficult. It makes it challenging. It means that you and I are not promised a comfortable life. In fact, if we read the truth of Scripture over and over again, Jesus says, and Paul talks about sufferings that we will know. Pain that we will experience. Brokenness that will be a part of our life. That was close. All the things that this world can do to cause pain, we will still experience even though we are following Jesus. That's a promise. 
It's a promise I wish I couldn't make to you, but I will promise that every single person in this room who follows Jesus will have tears of pain in their eyes someday or another. They will have the ache of either loneliness or brokenness or a burden somewhere, somehow. Even though they are faithful, there will still be difficulty. And that's what Zechariah and Elizabeth do. But new but here's something good verse verse 8 and 9 say this once when Zechariah's vision was on duty and he was serving as priest before God he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense and when the time for the burning of incense came all the assembled worshipers were praying outside here is a guy who's called a priest And he knows the brokenness of infertility. He knows the brokenness of being childless in his life. He knows the brokenness of disappointment. He knows the brokenness of hoping and longing for something and it not happening. And what does he do? He keeps going. He doesn't just keep going like, I'm going to trudge through the day. I'm going to do the next thing that I'm supposed to do. He does what he does. As a priest and as a man in obedience to God's calling of his life. Even though there's that pain. Even though there's the loss of fire. He says, God, you have called me to go and so I will go. Zechariah and Elizabeth live about a day and a half, two days journey south of Jerusalem. So for him to be obedient to the calling of being a priest is not just simple work. It's not just, oh, I'm going to do something for an hour or two hours and then I can get back to my life, my life of hurt, my life of pain, my life of frustration. No, he has to take literally days, a day and a half journey there, a day of being the priest who offered incense in the Holy of Holies, and then a day, day and a half to go home. This was a commitment that he'd made and he kept his commitments out of obedience to Christ, even though you had to wonder whether or not he thought in his mind, God's let me down. I'm still going to be obedient, even though I wonder if God has let me down. How do we respond when trials continue? How do we live when things happen to us? Are we people who will continue to move forward in obedience to Christ? Even though we are disappointed. Even though we are frustrated. Even though the the baby hasn't come. Will we still trust in God? Even though the diagnosis is real and the condition is getting worse. Will we still pray and praise God and worship him? Even though the relationship that we long to have restored continues to be broken and in fact gets worse will we still say Lord I will but trust in you Jesus I will still believe in you spirit I will still follow you or do we give up our faith Zechariah gives us an example I thought of another example recently because it's been one year One year, Carol. A year ago, Sandy Jones succumbed to his battle with pancreatic cancer. And I had the privilege, oftentimes, of just visiting and sitting with Sandy. Sometimes Carol was there, sometimes she was not. But we would have wonderful conversations, Sandy and I. 
And if you don't know anything about pancreatic cancer, it, cancer is an evil that just consumes everything. Pancreatic cancer is a special kind. It just slowly takes away. There's pain. There's lack of eating. There's no energy. And Sandy was experiencing all of those things. And one of the times, right near the end, I think it was maybe about 10, 15 days before he did die, I was sitting with him. And at this point, he can barely speak. Couldn't talk very much. We didn't have much conversation. But one thing that he did say to me is this. So, Pastor Scott, I've lost a lot of things to cancer. There's been a lot of things that that have been taken away from me. But one of the things that I miss the most is coming to the altar to pray. Now, you didn't know, unless you were here early mornings during the weekday, that Sandy, in the years before he died, would come here early in the morning. We gave him a key to the outside doors. He would come in, and he would kneel at this spot right here. It was right here. This is where Sandy would kneel. And for 45 minutes, an hour, he would pray, and he would pray for Carol and the kids. He would pray for me. As his pastor, he would pray for the church. He would pray for the school where he worked and there was conflict there and challenges that he was facing. He would pray for children who were wayward and weren't following Jesus. He would pray into God's care for a life that he, he, he knew he was going to miss and feel the pain. And when I sat with Sandy that day and he said to me, one of the things that I longed, that I missed the most is to come to the altar and pray. I thought afterwards, I thought, what faith? Here's a man who is in massive amounts of pain. He's incredibly uncomfortable. He's got struggles at work. He's got challenges in the family. He's got burdens that he carries. And yet, more than anything within that pain and that struggle, all he longs to do is come and commune with God. Commune with the Holy Spirit. Listen to Jesus. And being loved by him. It's convicting to me. Because oftentimes when things don't turn out right for Scott Elgersma, what does Scott Elgersma get? Scott Elgersma gets angry. Scott Elgersma's gonna fix it. Scott Elgersma holds on tighter and flexes his muscles bigger, although that's not very impressive. But he does the things that he's going to do to solve it. Here is a man who in much worse circumstances than I would do nothing except come before the altar, the presence of God and pray. He longed for more of God, even though some might have said, God let you down, Sandy. Sandy didn't know that. He didn't believe that. He didn't think that for a moment. In fact, he thought more than anything that my God is bringing me closer to him. The pain of my cancer brings me closer to him. The fear of the future brings me closer to him. The hurt of this life brings me closer to him. How do we experience that? You all know hurt. I know disappointment. We all know pain. Is that pain a fuel? And if it is a fuel, what is it fuel for? A fuel to walk away from God? Or go screaming towards him, to embrace him, 
Because the assurance is that we, when we come before the throne of grace, it doesn't make everything better. It doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't fix it automatically. But it does mean that we know God's presence and his love will never forsake us. It does mean that we are not alone and isolated in our pain, in our disappointment, and in our frustration. That God is with us, dwelling within us, dwelling with us right in the middle of all that yuck. That's the assurance that God gives to us. That's the assurance that we claim for Eli today. No matter what happens, no matter what occurs next, God will be his God. Now, we get into the miracle part of the passage, beginning at verse 11. This is when we read what God did to show up. He says this, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now you and I do not understand how big of a deal that is. Imagine you're going through life carrying this un... It's been this unmet longing. But now you're way past years. Now you're 50, 60 years old. You've longed for a child. Vandertags, I'm not going to bring you up again. I promise I won't this time, okay? Pick someone else. I'm not going to pick anyone because every time I pick somebody, I get into trouble. So you pick somebody who you know, a couple who is old, beyond childbearing years. And suddenly, that couple gets told, you're going to have a baby. It makes sense why Zechariah says what he says next. What does he say? How can I be sure of this? Basically what he's saying, direct translation from Greek is, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Look at me. I am saggy all over the place. I am wrinkly everywhere. I don't have any hair here. I have hair everywhere else. And that's not even about my bride. She's a beautiful woman to me. Maybe not to the rest of the world. Because she's old. And she's beyond childbearing years. This is not going... You gotta be crazy. You can understand why Zechariah asked the question. He had longed for this his whole life. It's not just a question of the plumbing and whether or not things will work. It's a question of life. I have longed for this for decades. Elizabeth and I prayed for this for years. We wept tears before you, O God. Our knees are calloused from being before you, longing that you would come and answer our prayer. 
And now? Now? What? Why now? What? Why now? Do any of you ever wonder that for Zachariah and Elizabeth? Why now? I think I have the answer. Because only God can do this. Only God is the one who gives this sort of joy. Only God who can give this sort of hope. Only God who can give this sort of wholeness in the midst of brokenness. Only God can give this sort of life into what was barren and dead. And when John the Baptist was ultimately born, full of the Holy Spirit from birth, the text says, You can imagine that that whole town where they lived, the entire priestly line, when they got together for their priest Christmas party, and all of a sudden Elizabeth is carrying the baby, you know that every single one of them was looking and said, only God can do that. Only God can come and make that sort of joy in life. Only God can do that sort of miracle. And Zechariah going up from his little town to God's city with the longing of his heart, God met him and said, I'm going to do something in you that only I can do so that when the world looks at you, they will see me. And that's the question for us. How do we respond when God shows up? How do you respond when God is active? When God is a part of your treatment, when God is a part of the cure, when the God, God is part of your restoration, when God gives you the little glimpses of grace in this world, when God says to you, I am going to give you something, I am going to bless you, I am going to show you my love. Because oftentimes what we do is we look at what God has given us and we either say, but that's not right, I really wanted this, or we say, that's not enough. That's a problem. We're not recognizing God showing his love and his grace because what we might have wanted from the beginning wasn't something that was good for us to begin with. And God is saying, I know better. I know better. In my time, you will get what it is that I want to give to you. The thing that will be good. The thing that will show the world me. The thing that will show the world my glory. I'm going to show it to you in my time. When God shows up in our lives, ours is to be what Elizabeth does. Let's keep reading. We'll see what Elizabeth does do. Verse 19 says this, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. There's the consequence. It's the consequence of not recognizing God's activity, God's grace and God's love in such a way that gives God glory. Zechariah bears the consequence and that means he has to shut up for three months. Or, sorry, nine months. And you can imagine that Elizabeth was probably pretty happy about that sometimes. (laughs) Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering why he'd stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, could not speak to them. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. 
When his time of service was complete, he what? He returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. For five months remained in seclusion. Look what she does. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth recognizes God's activity. Elizabeth recognizes how God has been at work. Sure, I'm sure that she was thinking it took 40 years, it took 50 years, it took however long it was because we just know they were very old. God, you didn't do this before, but now you've done it and I will simply say, praise you, O Lord. Praise you, O God. Praise you for what you have done in my life. I praise you for how you have shown yourself to the world through me. I'm not going to be the person who asks the questions of Zechariah. I'm not going to miss the gift of your grace and your love. I am going to take whatever it is that you give me. If it is a good parking space in church so I don't have to walk too far, I'm going to praise you for it. If it is an extra uh, dollar in my pocket that I forgot was there before I did laundry, I'm going to praise you for it. If it is healing from cancer, if it is a treatment that prolongs my life, if it is a phone call from an estranged child or parent, if it is a neighbor who asks a question that shows that they're wondering about who Jesus is, if it is a person in church who hasn't been here for weeks, months, or years because they're wondering about whether or not God loves them again, God can still love them, we will give God praise for it. Because all of those are miracles. There's, 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 there's this debate that has gone through the church at various times. And the debate is this. Does God still do miracles? Does God still do miracles, right? Because we see these extraordinary acts that Christ does. We see the extraordinary acts of the disciples after Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We see these extraordinary things in the life of the church that happen. But then the question is, after the end of God's word, and you may not believe this, but there is actually this discussion. After the end of the writing of scripture, have there been miracles or are these just extraordinary things that God has done, but they're not miracles. I'm going to say this. A beautiful sunrise is a miracle. A newborn baby is a miracle. That you and I being able to live in loving relationship with a spouse, with a child, with a grandparent, even as we see some of the bird, we see, you know, Sid uh, diagnosis when it first started. The first diagnosis was basically it's done. Well, now, now the diagnosis is we'll have to wait and see. To me, that's a miracle. It's a miracle of more time for the family with Sid to see what happens next. Maybe God's going to do something extraordinary. Wilma is imploring you and I actually to be praying for that miracle because she trusts deeply that God can do something extraordinary. And I believe that to be true, that God shows up in extraordinary ways, forms, and fashions in your and my life through his little miracles of grace. But the challenge is for us to be able to see them.
Are we looking for the home run? Are you looking for the one that is the neon sign in the wall, I did this? Or do you and I have eyes to see that God is active on a second-by-second basis in our life? Someone, Everyone do this. Take a deep breath. Blow it out. Guess what? That's a miracle. It's a gift. Because someday you're not going to be able to do that anymore. That's a gift. It's a gift that you're going to be able to walk out of this place and give hugs to people who care about you and love you. It's a gift that you're going to be able to go pick up your kid from children's ministry and take them home and enjoy the rest of your Sunday together. It's a gift that you are able to go down there and get really bad coffee and really, you know, depending on who brought the cookies today. We'll see. I'm sorry, Dewanda. It's good coffee. You make it the best, Dewanda. Oh, see, I get myself in trouble every Sunday. That's a gift. Receive it. And then do what Elizabeth did. I give you praise, O Lord. You gave me this, this moment. It is a gift from you. And I glorify you. This week, this week, this week is a praise week. Have eyes to see. Have eyes to see. Even in this story from Florida, this horrible, horrible story, have eyes to see where God is at work. Have eyes to see in your workplace where God is at work. Have eyes to see in your family where God is at work. Have eyes to see in your own life where God is at work, showing himself to you, making his power, his presence, his grace known to you through the work of Jesus Christ that has redeemed you, which is ultimately, folks, the greatest miracle we know. The gift of grace in Jesus Christ that redeems us from death, hopelessness, and no future into life and an eternity with him. If you know that, if you know that grace, then you know God's miracle. Give him praise for it. Would you pray with me? God of miracles, of wonders beyond our imagination. Sometimes those wonders are as simple as a flower in bloom. And sometimes they're as complex as a healing that defies explanation. Sometimes, Lord, the miracles come in a smile. They come in another meal. They come in another day sober. Father, may we see these as works of your grace, your love, and your power in us through Jesus Christ. And when we see them, we give you praise because truly you are the God of miracles. Christ, we pray. Amen.